Good morning, church family. I'm grateful to be here this morning, I hope. Amen. It's nice to see us all together, right? Some of you that like to wake up early and be gone, like, ah, I liked it better. Some of you are like, ah, I don't know. You know, I, I preach not because it's my job. I preach not even really because it's a calling as much as it's a burden in the best possible way. It's all I think about. And the notion of freedom is very near and dear to my heart. The notion is freedom is tied inescapably to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when life has brought you to a place of, of just bondage. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Amen. Just how did this happen? How, how did my decisions lead me to a place where I'm so stuck? And Jesus meets you there in that place. And he not only sets you free, but then he gives you a job to do. How can you not respond? Gladly. You know, John 20, verse 31, and I've read this before, and as John highlights sort of the purpose for his writing and for his ministry, he says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's saying, look, these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the truth of who Jesus was and is, and he doesn't stop there. Sometimes we do, but he doesn't. He says, and that by believing you may have life. Real life, not just existence, but real life, abundant life that Jesus talks about. See, I'm grateful for another day that wasn't promised. I'm grateful for another chance to live for Jesus and make a difference. And so today, as we know, it's July 4th. It's a, it's a day we celebrate, Independence Day, and we should be proud and grateful to live in a nation where so many gave everything that we could be free. See, people wanted to be free from living under the rule of a king. Today marks the anniversary of the Second Continental Congress adopting the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776, with a Congress made up of delegates from the United States' original 13 colonies unanimously approved the document that declared independence from Great Britain. They would be free. I read this description of that achievement by Barbara Clark Smith. She's a curator of political history at the National Museum of American History, and she said this. She said, it was an extraordinary achievement for these colonists to get together, to adopt this founding declaration. They needed to find a way to put differences aside and join together to work for a common goal. And she said this statement, while declaring independence, they also declared interdependence. See, we need one another as citizens, as humans, but it's even bigger for us as the church, as Christians, as we encourage one another on towards the good work God has called us to do. In fact, it's why we're here this morning. 
See, it's not just about building a nation or building our own individual kingdoms or pursuing our particular flavor of the American dream, but it's about building his kingdom. It's about leveraging our lives for Jesus and being free to live under the one and only king. And if we miss that, we miss everything. I read this quote, it says, true freedom is not the liberty to do whatever we want. True freedom is not the liberty to do whatever we want. That notion is destroying us. As a country and as individuals, that notion of freedom. We talked about that the last few weeks. True, liberty is not, is true freedom is not the liberty to do whatever we want. It is the strength to do what is right. That is also true of bravery. May God grant us this strength. See, Psalm 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So as believers, we're called to live with our dependence upon Christ first and foremost. And yet for so many of us, particularly in the West, we still find our identity in our accomplishments, in our possessions, in our status, in the identity not that we have in Christ, but that culture or the world or or people around us give us. See, we're living in pursuit of our own agenda above and beyond becoming part of the body of Christ, living out his commands that we be the church. See, as we said last week, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, about true freedom. And he defines it simply when he says, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. Which means that we know that the point of our freedom as a nation and as humans and as Christians is to ask ourselves this. You know, don't just, don't just come here and hear information. Engage that information. Allow the Spirit of God to work in your heart and in your mind and in your spirit that you would leave here challenged and convicted, motivated, made uncomfortable. I pray, God, make me uncomfortable. And it's a scary thing to pray, but it's even scarier when you find yourself comfortable on autopilot. See, we say that we're free, but some of us are anything but free. And those of us who are free, who are walking in freedom, I say, to what end? What do you do with your freedom? You've heard me say before that if you really want to find somebody's priorities, look at their calendar and their checkbook. Don't ask them, because we're, we're self-deceived oftentimes. Look at where do they spend their time, where do they spend their resources. That'll tell you what their priorities are. See, we've become enslaved in all sorts of ways, church. Pornography, sexual sin, materialism, addiction, working too much, allowing the TV to babysit our children, taking the easy road because it's easy. The title of the message this morning is Young, Rich, But Still Not Free. Young, which is really symbolic of promise, 
of opportunity, of youth, of your future ahead of you instead of, you know, your past behind you. Wealth, material wealth, resources, the ability to leverage things, and yet still not free. Opportunity and resources, and yet still not free. Mark 12, beginning verse 28, says, one of the scribes came, heard them arguing, and recognized that he had answered them well, speaking of Jesus. He asked, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost of all is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated he is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's much more than what we do just out of duty and obligation. It's bigger than that. It's a heart thing. And verse 34 says this, When Jesus saw he had answered intelligently, which was rare in people's responses to Jesus. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. That statement, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, when your priorities are in order, when you understand that it's your heart that the Lord wants, then you are closest to the kingdom of God. We are nearest to the kingdom of God when we have our priorities in order. So this morning, with the time we have, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about things like identity and priorities and money and pride and generosity and maturity and materialism and freedom. And my hope is that we leave here having been made uncomfortable enough to allow God to make changes where he sees fit. Not where I see fit, not where your spouse necessarily sees fit, although there's, you know, a principle there, right? The Lord, our spouses know us better than ourselves oftentimes. You know, nothing hurts more when somebody's speaking the truth to you that you've been trying to avoid, right? The Holy Spirit is like that. And we need to respond. See, God's word, it should confront us. It's supposed to confront us. It should convict us. It should challenge us. And it most certainly commands us. So can you be encouraged by the promises of God? Absolutely. Can you be, you know, can you, can you find healing and restoration and motivation? Can there be positive things in that regard? Absolutely. But it is more about your condition that Christ is trying to change than your circumstance. And we say that all the time. In fact, Jamie in his prayer this morning said it may just be that your circumstance that you're in right now is the very thing God's trying to use to get your attention. But we pray, Lord, remove the circumstance. Lord, remove the circumstance. 
You know what Jesus' prayer in the garden to the Father was? Remove the circumstance. Make it different. Lord, if there's another way. And then he continues that prayer and says, but not my will, but yours to be done. We're real good at the first half of that prayer. Lord, if there's another way, Lord, take this cup from me. But what if he doesn't want to? What if that's your cup? What if he wants to do greater things? Out of your difficulty, out of your struggle, out of your relationship issues. See, we've got to allow the word to confront us and convict us and challenge us and command us. If we don't, we just, we just know things. We, just, we get information, and we can recite those things to people. But it's not, that's not what it's about. It's not information for the sake of information. It's information so we know the character, the heart of God. And so that truth, that living, active sword, cuts to us so that we can see what things need to change and allow God to do that work. See, I spent a good part of my Christian walk working on the outside. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Got to make sure you say the right things and, you know, you clean up, clean up the outside a little bit and you plug in and you serve somewhere. And, and now it's like, okay, good. Now I can kind of hit autopilot. I'm doing the Christian thing. But I wasn't free. Week after week, I would come to a service and I wasn't free. In my case, it was, a, it was a physical addiction, but it could have been anything. It didn't have to be. I just didn't reach out and say I'm struggling until you know, the wheels came off and I had to. Why? Because I was afraid if they knew the truth, they couldn't love me. A lot of good reasons we stay with our hidden sin, but it's still going to kill us. And so we must not simply hear but respond. It's a call to action the gospel. It's an invitation to put Christ first in all areas, not just a few. And so this morning, my prayer is that each of us have an encounter with Jesus. That we allow him to confront us with some things. Because I don't know about you, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but I know Jesus needs to confront me with some things. God, change us from within so that we live differently for you. God, that's what we want. That's why we're here. Not just to hear things, but to be changed by your power, your word, and your spirit. So have your way. Do what only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a sad story to me in Scripture. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, if you want a moment to turn there. And I'm going to read this from Mark's version, because there's a particular turn of phrase that Mark uses And it really touches me regarding the humanity of this exchange with Jesus. You'll see where we're going to read. It says Jesus looked at him and had a deep love for him. And I identify with that turn of phrase because I can picture, unfortunately, more than one time in my life where I just sensed that Jesus looked at me. Looked at me with that promise of a way out looked at me with that, that sort of, that, that love of a parent of, don't you know that if you keep doing this, nothing's going to change? 
You know when you look at your kids and you're talking to them and you're giving them good advice and you just know they're looking at you and they don't get it. You just know, you're just like, you don't, you're just talking to a wall. And you try anyway because that's what you do as a good parent. And you're like, yeah, they're not. This, I got nothing, right? But yeah, you still love them because you're like, if you only knew. I know what I'm talking about. That's what I pictured Jesus doing here. And then I wonder how many times he's done that to me. I'm going to read the scripture, then we're going to take pieces of it. Verse 17, it says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And then this is that phrase in verse 21. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. In verse 22, it says, at this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Sorry, the rich man is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Various authors recall different points for us. From Matthew, we learn of his youth. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. We know that he belonged to a social group that was scarcely touched by the gospel at this time. And it's interesting to me that there were so many things that he had going for him. In fact, there's a lot here in the exchange. There's a lot here in the posture of the young man, and there's certainly a lot in the way Jesus engages him and responds to him. There was so much he did right. Matthew 19, 20 says, the man was young and he came to Jesus. So that alone, he had the luxury of youth. His whole future was ahead of him, the possibility of years of service for the Lord. I read this quote. It says, the devil has no happy old people. And I just thought, that's funny, but that's, it's kind of not, right? In other words, when you get to that point and you look back and you realize what your life was spent pursuing, and you realize that, boy, he had you, that you were deceived, the devil has no happy old people. Nobody looks back and says, I'm so glad, you know, I worked every moment of my life and neglected everything. I'm so glad I pursued material wealth because I feel like I finally have enough. I'm so glad that instead of using things and loving people that I used people and loved things. I'm so glad about that. See, this young man was eager. It says he came running to Jesus. This was not incidental that Scripture says that. This was not a normal occurrence for a man of his stature to go running to Jesus. That was a very, very intentional 
act of, of deference. It meant that he was eager to be in the presence of Jesus. See, too many of us are waiting for a more convenient day. In the last 10 days, I've lost three more friends. 10 days. One of them uh, was in you know, recovery for a long, long time, was part of Teen Challenge. His mother had buried his younger brother, his, her first son, 10 years ago maybe. Now both of her sons are gone. I read a quote the other day and it said, you know, you never realize your last opportunity to love somebody, right? You never realize when you're talking to somebody, when you're that somewhere along the line, there's gonna be a last time that you talk to everybody you talk to and you don't know when that is. But we always wait for some future time to do our business with Christ, for some future time to submit ourselves to him. Someday, God. You know how many guys I've heard, girls I've heard, someday I'm gonna you know, try a program. And someday never comes. See, this man's eagerness is shown by his running and kneeling in the public highway. The Greek, the Greek verb to be taken literally, a possible interpretation is begging. In other words, he is publicly running up to Jesus and he's kneeling down begging Jesus for everybody to see. This was not a casual conversation. This wasn't like, hey, Jesus, come here, come here. That eternal life thing. You want to let me know what do you got? No, he didn't care. He saw Jesus and he knew that something was missing and he did what he needed to do. Jesus, what must I do? I mean, he was young, he was eager, he was humble, he had an appetite for spiritual things. These are things a lot of us lack. And it's easy to look at him and be like, oh, he missed it. His spiritual insight is shown by the application of the adjective good to Jesus. He knows what good, he knew what that meant. He knows that there was something different about Jesus, that there was a standard beyond all standards, that Jesus is holy. He knew Jesus was the Messiah. He just didn't know it the way Paul knew it and the way Peter knew it, but he knew it informationally. He knew it intellectually. And he has a spiritual hunger because he desires eternal life. He doesn't just want information. He wants to go deeper. He knows that there's something there. This is why it's such a sad story. To have come so close. What shall I do, he asked. This was a solemn, urgent Vital spiritual question. He was concerned about his soul. We don't even think much about that today. Just find somebody randomly, be like, hey, what you know, what do you how do you think about your soul? They'd be like, I don't, people don't even have a category for that. People just deny that a soul exists. He was religious, but he was lost. I'm afraid that sometimes our churches are filled with people who are religious but lost. People who fast and tithe and they go to church and they know the law but aren't born again. People who have a hunger in their soul but they're not saved because they're holding on to something. Because when Jesus gave it all and invites them to give it all in return, they go, ah, I think I gotta hedge my bets. I read this in a commentary. 
His impatient brushing, brushing aside of expected Orthodox Jewish suggestion that his way to life was by keeping the commandments shows a spiritual perception far advanced of that displayed even by the average scribe. In other words, what they're saying there is the minute Jesus answered the question of how must I inherit eternal life, the minute Jesus starts saying, well, you know the commandments, just obey the commandments. The minute he said that, the guy was like, no. No, I know it's, I know it's deeper than just that. The Jewish, the Pharisees, the, said, the scribes of the day, they didn't know that. And he does. See, we miss all that in the text. And the com- com- commentator said this, but his spiritual insight was not matched by a readiness for committal, which involves sacrifice, and so he went away sadly. Ouch. In this case, the impediment was his wealth, and so sooner than give that up, he gave up Jesus. Sooner than give up his wealth, he gave up Jesus. I wonder in my life, if somebody looked at my life, if they could say that, if they could say, sooner than give up this, he gave up Jesus. I know for a long time that was true. And now I want people to say he gave up Jesus for everything else. See, Jesus as often tries to draw from the man the full implications of his own words. He came to the teacher for help. He recognized he was good. And yet when Jesus gives him truth, he doesn't want to respond because he realizes at the deepest level what's involved. See, he identified Jesus being God, but not like Peter did, not like Paul did. See, when Jesus asks who people say he is, and then he says, but who do you say that I am? Peter replies, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So when people ask us who Jesus is, do we, we just look at whatever everybody else thinks? Well, Jesus is this and he's that. But who is he to you? Who is he to me? He is this guy and he seems to have everything. You know, everything the world has to offer. He's young, he's a ruler, he's a person of status, of wealth, particularly in those days. That's, that's everything. What else is there? And then when Jesus says, you know, you keep the commandments, he's, I've done these things. We're going to delve into that exchange a little bit more. But he's like, I've done that too. The six, first six commandments, which is all, all Jesus brings up, and they have to do with the way we engage other people. So in other words, not only is this guy young, and not only is this guy rich, and not only is this guy somebody of status, but he has a good reputation. He treats people well. He's honest. He could say, well, if you asked everybody, they'd all say, I was a really good guy. That's what that means. He was sincere in his desire and his longing. See, when he says, I've kept the commandments since my youth, means he had a good reputation. It's easy to miss this 
But Jesus only mentions six of the Ten Commandments, the six that have to do with how we treat one another, and he doesn't mention the four that have to do with how we engage the Lord, how we interface with God himself. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath. See, many Christians, like this young man, are so concerned with how the world sees us, and rightfully so. But remember Jesus' commands, love the Lord your God must come first. We can't do ministry for Jesus without Jesus. And so our ministry, our lives are an outflow of that first thing. If we neglect the first thing, the best we have is religion. The worst we have is hypocrisy, arrogance, becoming Pharisees. Jesus says in John 15, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can, be, you can be, do nothing. See, we can be religious, we can seem like a good person, but deep down inside, somewhere along the line, we're going to have an encounter with Jesus, and we're going to list all the things we got right. It's like a job interview. This young man could have been like, I'm young, I'm rich, everybody loves me, I've done, you know, all this stuff, Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's great. Let's talk, to, let's talk about that one thing. See, this isn't really a story about money per se. It is for many of us, but it's not always This is a story about Jesus looking at you and I with love in his heart and saying that, that thing, that relationship, that habit, that addiction, that whatever that is, that thing that I'm asking you to give up, what are you going to do when you consider? See, for all his knowledge and all his wealth, he couldn't remove the idol that had taken place on the throne of his heart. He only had an outward observance of the law for all his intellect and all his understanding. He did not have a deep spiritual experience like Peter or Paul or so many others. See, this man and every human being's experience is this. Even if outwardly we seem self-satisfied, inwardly, we realize, yet, like the young ruler, that something is missing. He wouldn't have come to Jesus the way he did if deep down inside he didn't realize something was missing. What is the longing that drew him? What is the thing that made him say, I have everything, yet it feels like I have nothing, it, it's just not enough? I submit to you that we're born with that because we're created in God's image. Sin tarnished that image and Christ came to restore it. And we will long for him. Like Augustine said, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. See, apart from renouncing his wealth, there was no other way by which it was possible for this man to be close to Jesus. Want to know why this is so profoundly sad to me? This is the only man in all of the New Testament 
who had an encounter with Jesus and he went away sad. There's a lot of people who encounter Jesus and they go away filled with joy. This is the only man who had an encounter with Jesus and rather than it be a positive impact, it's the only one that it's noted that he went away sorrowful from the presence of Jesus. The other reason it's so sad is because I see it repeated in the church far too often. People will come, particularly in the midst of relationship difficulties or, or a particular health struggle, and then God will meet them, and God will heal them, sometimes physically, sometimes spiritually, but he'll always meet them. Sometimes he'll work in the relationship. Whatever it is, he'll show up, and he'll work, and people will say to me, oh, you know, this is what I needed, and God's here, and then something will happen, and they'll fall right back to the same same pattern, up and down, up and down. And I'll run into them. They'll say, and they always say, like, if people will see me, they haven't seen me in months, and I'll be like, oh, i got to get back to church. <laughs> Do you? I don't know. I know, why is that always the first thing people say to me? I should just get a T-shirt that says, you got to get back to church and just save the... <laughs> but you know, everything in the world, everything in, in the world is going to try and keep you away from the source of spiritual life. And, and, and if people miss church and they say, you know, I wouldn't even be sad if I thought, well, you know, I mean, you get 95% of your spiritual nourishment in your own devotion time anyway, so if you miss the, you know, the little, that's okay. But it, the, the sad thing is, that's the other way. This is like 95% of our spiritual nourishment. And so when somebody I haven't seen in three, four months, five months, says, I, you know, I have, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna get back, or I'm just like... I pray that you do. For your own sake, I pray that you do because the enemy is going to keep you out there as long as he can. Until you feel like there's no way back. There's always a way back. But the enemy wants to convince us there's not. See, this man's reaction shows Jesus hit a nerve. It's interesting that it says that he went away sad. I mean, you're, you're making a decision. You're, you're deciding. Jesus is standing here, and you have all the other stuff that you think is important, and you're making a decision. I mean, if, if, it's, if it's sad, just make the other decision. You ever, you ever in that place? You, ever, you, know, you know you're not doing the right thing, and you got that, you know, you can't feel good about it, right? Spirit conviction, you can't. You know you can do it anyway sometimes, and that's, that's the feeling this guy had. And he couldn't get out of his own way. And it's heartbreaking to me. A literal translation when Jesus says how hard it is for, the, for rich people. He says how hard it is for those who have things, for those who have riches. He's talking about materialism. How hot is us when our possessions, when our gadgets become the barriers in our lives? Andy Stanley once said, I wonder what I would buy if I didn't know what anybody else had. Right? How much less stuff would we have if we didn't even know? See, in verse, in verse 22, 
We have a reference to his sorrow, to his fallen countenance, to going away sad, but he didn't have to. And we don't have to. We're going to have an opportunity to have communion together. A few more comments, and then we're going to close, but we're going to have an opportunity. And Paul tells us to examine ourselves, to stop and consider. And I would pray that you just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to convict you, and you would ask yourself, what is that area? Maybe it is your finances. Maybe it's something else. What is that one area that Jesus is saying, that right there, I don't want you to walk out of these doors and still hold on to that. And here's the thing, and we don't do it for this, but I'm just going to say there's nothing God's ever trying to take out of my hands that he didn't give me something better, and that's a spiritual principle. That means the things I've held on to, I'm like, boy, am I glad that he took that from me. See, money doesn't bring us happiness. The Bible doesn't condemn money, but the love of it. What possibilities could this man's life and resources have done for the kingdom? Had he given his life to Christ instead of walked away sad? See, the story's not about money per se, and Jesus isn't telling all of us to sell everything we have, but he is telling us, he is telling us that if there is anything in your life that competes with Jesus, take drastic measures to rid yourself of it. That's what he's telling us. If there is anything at all in your life or my life that competes with Jesus, then take drastic measures to remove yourself from it, because whether slowly or quickly, it will kill you. And it will never bring you fulfillment or joy or peace or all the things that the enemies convinced you it will. See, as we said in the beginning, God wants our heart. It's a matter of priorities. In one moment, this man is running to Jesus. He's kneeling at his feet. And the next moment, he's walking away sad. At least he's honest with himself, right? At least he was honest instead of playing games. The basic needs of the human heart can never be satisfied by possessions, by fame, by fortune. The world will never satisfy the soul of man. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the world yet loses his soul? See, essentially, in every one of us, we're created in God's image. There's only fundamentally one sin, the same sin in the garden, pride. Saying, Lord, in this area, I know better than you do. Anybody else find that to be true yet? Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It costs Jesus his life, and it will cost us ours. It's a life for a life. We can't claim to live for Christ if we're still living for ourselves. He died for all. Scripture says that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And the good news is that God says to us what he says to Cain when Cain became angry because he was disobedient, and instead of giving God his best, he was trying to shortchange him. He was trying to leverage. He was trying to hedge his bets. Genesis 4, so Cain became angry and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, the same thing Jesus said to the rich young ruler, the same thing God says to us. 
Why is your countenance fallen? In other words, what's your problem? What's the matter with you? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and it's desirous for you, but you must master it. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you don't, sin will destroy you. See, I want to encourage you that no matter what happened in your past, and your past is like when you walked in here, right? No matter what you walked in here with, no matter what struggle, no matter what sin, no matter what burden, no matter what prior commitment, no matter what idol, you don't have to leave here the same way. You don't have to walk away sad. All you need to do is repent. And repent doesn't just mean I feel different, I feel bad. Most of us repent, we just don't like the idea because we have an effect of our sin. We're not sorry for our sin, we're sorry for the effects of our sin. Repentance is I'm sorry for my offense to you, you're a holy and perfect and beautiful God. And I don't wanna be the way I was, I wanna be like Jesus. And the Lord not only accepts us, but it rejoices. Zephaniah 3.17 the Lord your God is with you, he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. I want to read this small essay, little article here, and then we're going to have communion together. Some of you have heard this story of William Borden, the Borden Dairy Fortune. You go to the grocery store, you still find board and butter, and not that I eat butter, but <laughs> margarine. It's not true at all. In 1904, a young man named William Borden graduated from high school in Chicago, Illinois. He was a member of Moody Bible Church, and his pastor was R.A. Torrey. William was a fine Christian young man, and he was heir to the famous Borden Dairy Estate, and he was a multimillionaire by the time he finished high school. This is back in, like, 1906. As a graduation present, his parents sent him on a cruise around the world. It's not what I got when I graduated. (laughs) While on this cruise, God opened William's eyes and his heart to the masses of unsaved people around the world. God's work in William's heart was evident in the tone of his letters home. And in one of his letters, William wrote, Dear Mom, I think God is calling me to be a missionary. His final letter to her said, I know that God is calling me to to be a missionary. But becoming a missionary was not in the Borden family plan. William was the most gifted of all the children. He was sure to take over the family business. He returned home from his cruise and he enrolled at Yale where he spent four years. After he spent an additional three years in seminary. While in seminary, William gave away all of his personal wealth. After giving away his wealth, he opened his Bible, he turned to the flyleaf and he wrote two words, no reserve. He wanted to live by faith and trust God for everything in his life. So he began to pray about where God wanted to help him have him serve as a missionary. God put China on his heart where he hoped to work with a group of Muslims there. 
William committed himself to go, but a couple days before he was to board the ship and to sail, his father became deathly ill. His family came to him and said, William, you can't leave now. We need you to come and run the family business. It's an emergency, to which William replied, I cannot. I am committed now. There is no turning back. He opened his Bible again and wrote two more words, no retreat. As he was sailing to China, his ship stopped in Egypt, and while there, he contracted cerebral meningitis and was dead within three weeks. Seven years of training, a promising future, and William never made it onto the mission field. The papers considered his life a waste. The world said he had just given it all away. He could have had the whole world, but see, William knew better. And when his family found his Bible, they opened it up and saw what was written, the final two words, no regret. No reserve, no retreat, and no regret. See, when we hear stories like that, we think, oh, what an what a incredible, what an extraordinary person. When we hear stories like that, we should say, what an incredible, what an extraordinary God. Because that action is not about William Borden. That action about, is about his response to Jesus Christ in his life. It will not be said of William Borden that he went away sad. No reserve, no retreat, and no regret. Church, I challenge each of us to live that way for Christ as we transition to communion. and We take a moment now to examine ourselves, to prayerfully commit ourselves to him, the one who gave it all, who didn't withhold anything, from us. Let us live for him with our time, our talents, and our treasures. Give everybody a minute. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do that now. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember now together the sacrifice of Christ. Father, as we close and worship you, these altars are open, God. I pray 
that your word does convict, that it does challenge us, God. That we respond to the prompting of the Spirit. That whether we're in our seats, whether we come up to the front, whether we raise our hands, whether we sit silently, that we would do business with you. That we would stop running away, that we would stop hedging our bets, that we would stop trying to find our identity, our value, and anything other than you. Father, as we talk about and celebrate freedom, as Christians alone, we can experience true freedom. True freedom to live for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we close together in worship.